Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. I am Tim McIntosh and I am joined for the Coriolanus question and answer by Sarah Jane all the way from England. Sarah Jane, we've made it through Coriolanus. Uh, are more congratulations or condolences in order? I don't know. Ah, uh, I always find finishing a play slightly sad. You can't ever really finish a Shakespeare play, can you? No. So let's keep talking about it and reading it and watching it. Let's do that. Um, we have several questions that were brought to us by our faithful listeners. And I feel like with every passing month or with every passing play, the questions are getting more sophisticated, more insightful. There's kind of more history of Shakespeare and his corpus to draw from. And so um, without further ado, I'm going to actually ask the hardest question first, but I'm going to ask that we like give ourselves a little time to ruminate on it. In other words, let's not answer it until later in the podcast. Here it is from Sarah Montgomery. Number one, Sarah Montgomery. He's turning into like a star listener for us. The mother was so eager to sacrifice her son for Rome at the beginning of the play. It seems like in the end, she is true to herself and chooses Rome over her son, even though Rome has betrayed her son and disrespected his sacrifice. Coriolanus does end up sacrificing himself. himself. It seems to me like a noble hero. But, and here's Sarah's question, what is Shakespeare actually saying in the play? I think it is such a great question, and it's such a big scope question that um, I I just kind of want to try to wrap on that and see if we can kind of like pull some of these disparate strands together and kind of say what we think might be happening in this play. Does that sound good to you, Sarah Jane? Yes. And I think it was a really good idea to ask that question first, because now everyone listening can be thinking about it as well. Yes, exactly. 
So it's almost like a teaser question, and we're going to come back to it at the end of the play. Uh, we definitely will, and we must remind each other to do that. Just say, don't let me forget, and you're going to say, don't let me forget, Tim. Okay, also from Sarah. Uh, you've mentioned that he was writing Antony and Cleopatra at the same time. It seems like they have similar themes. Could you all compare and contrast them? Did Shakespeare often write pairs of plays that were similar like this. So, Jane, what do you think? Anthony and Cleopatra, comparison. Yes, I think it is really helpful to read and watch these two plays together. Um, they're similar in the sense that they both deal with ancient Rome, but I would see them as um, complementary in terms of being opposite. They're interested in contrasts really so the main similarity is they're both about Rome but the differences are where it's really interesting so as we said in, in some of the episodes Coriolanus deals with the nascent the nascent republic yeah. and Antony and Cleopatra is actually dealing with the decline of the republic and the beginning of the empire the start of imperial Rome so what we see on the one hand in Coriolanus is this kind of starving, hungry, warmongering beast. Um, and in, in the other play, we see, we see this sort of glutted, um, languishing, uh, maybe even idealistic, romanticized Rome, which is completely different to the Rome that Coriolanus inhabits. And, and so really the imagery of fasting and feasting is a good place to start for a comparison yeah. between the two. Um, also in Coriolanus, we have, I'd say the main focus of the play is, is war and warfare. And in the background, we have the more um, domestic peacetime relationships. They, they exist. So we know Coriolanus has a wife and a family, but they aren't the main focus of the play. Whereas in Antony and Cleopatra, the main focus of the play is their romance and the personal relationships between the characters. Um, and in the background, we have all of the political and um, military conflicts going on. So, so there's a kind of different focus in each play. Yeah. So I, I hope that's helpful as a way of starting to look at how the two fit together. I've heard when you said one is dealing with maybe famine, uh, Coriolanus, the other with Feast, Antony and Cleopatra. I've heard Antony and Cleopatra described as Shakespeare's most voluptuous play. It's very, which is saying something considering how, what a voluptuous writer he is. Um, and so that seems to fit with what you are suggesting about the kind of Feast versus Famine motifs in those two mm. plays. And, you know, we could even say it's true about the theatricality. I think that Coriolanus, Shakespeare almost delights in being quite bare and stripped back in terms of his theatricality. It's, it's a very classical tragedy, paying attention to the conventions of a classical tragedy. When we get to Antony and Cleopatra, I would say it is his most lavish, um, inventive, it delights in, in what the Elizabethan stage can do. Um, and so in that sense as well, it's kind of excessive where Coriolanus is more deprived. Maybe a little bit Spartan. It's funny, um, the, we mentioned the Tom Hiddleston production on this show, and we mentioned some of the um, 
production values of the show were incredible. But for those who haven't seen it, the production values were performed on an extremely sparse stage. I mean, I think for most of the stage, um, it's a bare floor. There's a ladder on the back wall. Occasionally, uh, chairs are brought in and out. But that's about the extent of the prop work, where it's impossible to imagine Antony and Cleopatra being done on that square blank kind of rudimentary stage. It's just really hard. Mm. Perhaps somebody could pull it off. It does seem like it's just too, you use the word lavish. It seems like it's too lavish to really succeed on a really sparse stage, stage like that. I think as well, if um, a parent or a teacher is looking to compare these two plays with students, it would be really interesting to spend a bit of time looking in detail at the, the sacrificial deaths at the end of the play. <laughs> because you could perhaps make the case that they are a bit like forced suicides. Yeah. Coriolanus and Cleopatra's death at the end. Um, so there's, there's lots of interesting details to draw out there. Yeah. And of course, the, the other place so you can start is that both of these plays are based on um, sources from Plutarch. Right, right. Okay, so toward that end, um, we've got a question about what might pair well with this play? So, toward a comparison, Mary Cummings asks, something I like doing when I teach complex literature is pairing works that compare and contrast nicely. Maybe pairing Oliver Twist with The Tempest to talk about the concept of nature versus nurture, which, by the way, Mary's really on to something. I love that mode of teaching, comparing and contrasting. Her question, what would you pair Coriolanus with and why? you have strong feelings about that, Sarah-Jane? I think it's a great way to increase and, and deepen the understanding of, of the play. It's such a great idea to put different texts together and um, draw them out like this. It's something I do a lot in my teaching. I think I would probably go for looking at maternal relationships. I would look for uh, possibly destructive relationships or sacrificial relationships. And there are a few novels I'd like to suggest that might work really well with Coriolanus in the light of those ideas. So I thought that perhaps Winter's Bone um, would go really well. Uh, have you ever read that one? Oh, there's, a, there's a movie called Winter's Bone. That's right, with... Um, I'm going to forget her name now. Jessica. Someone, this is like one of those moments where someone listening to the podcast is like yelling, what is her name? She was in the... Um, Silver Linings playbook. <laughs> she plays Jennifer. Reed Dolly anyway as the character. Lawrence, right? Jennifer Lawrence? Jennifer Lawrence. Sorry, not Jessica. Jennifer Lawrence. I've got Merchant of Venice on the brain. Um, Reed Dolly is like Coriolanus an individual who is trapped in a society that doesn't really understand her. Um, and I thought, and at the end she has to make the decision as to whether she's going to stay or go without giving too much away. Um, and by contrast, the mother in Winter's Bone is very, very passive. And in fact, Reed Dolly has to do a lot to kind of support 
her mother. So they're very, they're almost like opposite relationships between mother and child. So I thought that would be a very, very interesting. That's a contemporary novel. Yeah. And it's a sort of really Southern Gothic genre novel. It's excellent. Young people love it. It's very, very sad. Very good to know. So yeah, for especially in terms of parent-child relationships, that that would be very interesting, I think. Then I thought, um, you know, going to Shakespeare, what other play would I put alongside this? We've spoken about Antony and Cleopatra. I thought maybe in terms of the relationship between a son and a mother, I thought Hamlet might be very interesting wow. to look at Gertrude in comparison to Volumnia. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, things like manipulation, sacrifice work in those relationships. Um, are you much of an... Evelyn Waugh fan? I only know uh, Brideshead Revisited. Yeah, you know that one very well. I listened to that. Well, his other novel, A Handful of Dust, has a mother who is comparable to Volumnia in terms of her kind of almost callous relationship to her son. And without spoiling the plot, Brenda Last, the mother, has this kind of really unexpected reaction when she finds out that her son has died and I think comparing that to the silence of Volumnia would be very very interesting yeah so a handful of dust but my top comparison would be Frankenstein why because I think the creature relationship with Frankenstein the doctor is really analogous to Volumnia's relationship to Coriolanus, how she kind of creates him, she shapes him, she forms him, and that's, then she rejects him. That's really great. So yeah. I think those two would go together very well. And obviously that's one that people can listen to um, on the close reads as well. Right. We just finished that one for those who are um, new to the show. We had Heidi, David... Um, a couple other people participating in that show, Josh Gibbs, and they just finished it about one month ago. So if you are curious about that, please go log on to wherever you find your podcast and you will find the discussion of you'll find a discussion of Frankenstein. And by all counts, I hear it was a great one. Um, I want to mention again the other comparison, which is the the original source material for Coriolanus came in large part from Plutarch's Parallel Lives, in which Plutarch, a Macedonian Greek uh, historian, puts two comparable kind of heroic characters, one Greek, one Roman, side by side. So the great hero, not always hero as in protagonist, sometimes they're antagonists, but the great kind of um, life that he's exploring, that Plutarch's exploring, is the Greek Alcibiades. Alcibiades, like Coriolanus, is an incredible general. Um, he is also, like Coriolanus, despite Coriolanus's protests, a very eloquent man. But what, what um, Coriolanus accomplishes by force of will, Alcibiades accomplishes by being very slippery. And almost kind of, well, not even almost, he's a turncoat. He sides with Greece's enemies at one point and you know, turns toward back on Greece. 
very similar to what Coriolanus does at the end of this play. So that's a great one. And I, even though there, it's a different genre, uh, Plutarch's writing history, Shakespeare's writing dramatic plays, I think reading Coriolanus and then reading uh, Plutarch's Alcibiades could be really informative for a class. And of course, uh, Plutarch does a little side-by-side comparison about three pages at the end of those parallel lives in which he says, hey, I think this guy was superior or this guy was inferior for these reasons. So that's worth paying attention to. Uh, this question is from Laura. Sarah Jane, is Menenius, Menenius, writing, is his, or sorry, is his speech switching between blank verse and prose? I'm fairly new to reading Shakespeare. I might be missing something. Uh, but it seems like he's switching between verse and prose, which makes me think it, it's a device that shows he's trying to appeal and connect to both noble, high class, and the plebes. Am I reading this right? This is one of these questions. That, that's a sophisticated question. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, it can be um, really daunting reading Shakespeare. And, um, you know, sometimes it's not even possible to get as far as looking at the form and structure of the language beyond just, just focusing on what it means. So yeah, this is excellent reading and a really astute question. I think that Menenius, so am I reading this right is, is the basic question. Yes, in terms of this is what Menenius does. He switches between prose and verse. However, it's not exactly in order to connect to high class and plebeians. Because if you look carefully at all the scenes where Menenius switches between prose and verse, he is speaking sometimes to plebeians in both prose and verse. For example, at the beginning of the play, when he tells them the parable of the stomach, part of that scene, he is speaking in prose to the citizen. And when he starts to tell the story of the stomach, part of it is in verse. So he switches between verse and prose when he speaks to everybody. And it's also true when he's speaking to Coriolanus, they switch between verse and prose. So a really pertinent example of this is in Act 5, Scene 2, Menenius goes to Coriolanus in exile to try to persuade him to turn back and call off his assault on Rome. Menenius speaks in prose. He speaks with a kind of familiarity, a paternal familiarity to Coriolanus. Coriolanus replies in verse mm -hmm. and there's a kind of cold formality to that. Mm -hmm. So I think verse and prose can denote things like whether the speech is public or private, and it can denote whether the speech is formal or informal. It doesn't always necessarily denote whether the character is high or low class. So I hope that's helpful. That's very helpful for me. Sarah Jane, for readers who, um, maybe like Laura, are just kind of getting into Shakespeare for the first time, we have put forward that there's a general rule of thumb that that high class, that prose is spoken either by low class, low born characters, or when a character is speaking to low born characters, and Inversely, the verse is typically spoken by highborn or when addressing highborn, other highborn characters. That's a rule of thumb. 
But as the example that you just showed gave us, that rule of thumb, Shakespeare seems to have no hesitation in breaking that rule of thumb. You know, are there any other rules of thumb that you would apply toward this distinction between verse and prose? I would be inclined to look for the mood of the exchange. Is it formal? Is it public? Or is this private? Is it potentially a comic break in the middle of some highbrow uh, tragic action? Is it is it kind of a shift in in atmosphere from that? So it's it's really important to be alert when to when the characters shift the structure of their speech. Um, but I don't think it's always necessarily to do with the status, the the class status of the character. Although that yeah. is a good place to start. But in this play, there's quite a lot of prose actually. Virgilia speaks in prose. I think the only person who doesn't, uh, no, Cominius often speaks in blank verse. But even he at times speaks in prose. Um, for those people who are wondering what is the difference between verse and prose? Like how, what I should say is how would they identify verse? How would they identify prose? Almost all of the editors and published Shakespeare works have done the work for you. And the way to identify it is verse and prose are left justified. Meaning if you just look at the text from top to bottom, all of the lines align the run down the page top to bottom in one single column. So, uh, Meninius, I tell thee, fellow, this is from four, excuse me, five, two, which Sarah Jane just, Sarah Jane just mentioned. I tell thee, fellow, thy general is my lover. I have been the book of his good acts whence men have given his fame unparalleled, happily amplified, for I have ever verified my friends. So all of that is left justified, but the right justification is ragged because there's a meter or there's a verse built into those lines and the editors identify it by having a ragged right justification. The actual words on the actual page are ragged on the right side. Whereas most editors for prose make the, the words left justified and right justified. So on five, two, beginning in line 58, Meninius says, now you, my companion, I'll say an errand for you. You shall know now that I am in estimation. You shall perceive that a giant guardian cannot office me for my son Coriolanus. So that's spoken in prose and the difference, the, the actual visual difference on the pages, the verse is left justified and right ragged. The prose is left justified and right justified. There's a long explanation for something that I think a lot of people know, but it's worth kind of brushing up on. Anything to add there, Sarah Jane? Just that I think Alphidius and Coriolanus always speak to each other in verse, and perhaps this shows the sort of the respectful and formal relationship between yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Alphidius, Jessalyn Brock. I hope I'm saying your last name correctly, Jesslyn, asks, based on discussion of a late last podcast, it seems that Coriolanus knew he was giving up his life when he concedes to his mother's request. Yet, in the last scene, he enters with bravado. 
and seems surprised when he's called a traitor by Alphidius. Why does Coriolanus have, excuse me, why does Shakespeare have Coriolanus act in this manner? Sarah Jean, do you remember suggesting that um, Coriolanus knew he was giving up his life when he conceded to his mother's request? Yes. I I definitely agree with Jessalyn's reading there. I think the the long, long, long silence, the pause he has when his mother beseeches Mm. him um, is a time where he's kind of contemplating sacrificing himself for Rome. And he says, you have most dangerously, if not most mortally, with him prevailed, speaking about himself in the third person. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is, is a, a recognition that he will have to die if he crosses Alphidius. So, does it surprise you that um, when he's accused by Alphidius, in, in other words, if he seems to know that he's going to die, then why would he act surprised when Alphidius attacks him, when Alphidius accuses him? Mm. Well, if we go back to the end of the play... I think Coriolanus returns to the Volscans dutifully and is kind of humble at the beginning of the scene in the sense that he's saying, well, I'm as good as my word. I'm loyal to you, Aphidius. I said I would come back and here I am. And I really get the sense that what Coriolanus is expecting is some kind of public or state execution. And there is a Lord present who wants to give Coriolanus a chance to kind of give his testimony, which suggests there's going to be some sort of trial. Yes. So when Coriolanus's bravado kicks in, it's in response to personal attacks from the conspirators and from Aphidius. They call him traitor and they call him boy. So mm-hmm. when Coriolanus becomes full of his own sense of self-worth, it is in order to argue against these um, disparaging remarks from Alphidius. So he has to then, <laughs> in Alphidius's face, um, bring back the, uh, the, the reality that he was the eagle of Rome who fluttered the Volscans in Coriolis, yeah. which is the worst thing he could probably say in this context. <laughs> but when he starts doing this, he's not acting rationally. He's lost his temper. And we always know that when Coriolanus loses his temper, he can't stop talking. And um, he talks the consequences of that. So So, he's surprised, not that he would be facing, he he knows to expect death, mm. but the thing that surprises him is not the prospect of death, um, but the prospect of death at Ophidius's hands and Phidias's harsh accusations. That's what seems to be the surprise. Yeah, and being called a traitor because he comes back to Voshkin saying, look, I've been as good as my word. I've done what I said I was going to do. You were there when my mother came to persuade me. You said that you wouldn't have granted any less, Alphidius. Huh? Here I am, and now you're calling me a traitor and you're trying to deny that I that I fluttered your Volscans in Coriolis and I'm just some kind of boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what really shocks him is that, you know, he left the Volscans as a kind of, he had a godlike status amongst them. 
And suddenly now when he comes back, Alphidius has shaken that and said, you're just a, a kind of pawn in the political game that your mother played. Right. And that's when his pride is damaged. Yes. Yes. Jesslyn, I hope we did that question justice, ladies and gentlemen. Sarah Jane, from Stephanie Clark. Could we do a crossover discussion about the mother-son scenes at the end of Coriolanus and Crime and Punishment? Both of these anti-heroes consider themselves to be supermen. Both had these very moving and complicated encounters with their mothers before going to meet their respective destinies. Obviously, Raskolnikov. Those who haven't been following along, Raskolnikov is the main character, kind of anti-hero in Crime and Punishment. Obviously, Raskolnikov's mother is very different from Volumnia, but they both want to influence their boys to do the right thing while also wanting them to be safe. Uh, Stephanie also says, notably, Victor Frankenstein does not have a mother living to guide him when he creates the monster and continues on his path of self and family destruction. Uh, question. What is up with these anti-heroes and their mamas or lack thereof? <laughs> it's, it's pretty complicated, isn't it? I, so since I um, have just finished the Crime and Punishment podcast, I'll tackle this one, Sarah Jane. I do think that the relationship between both pairs, both Raskolnikov and his mother and Coriolanus and Volumnia are complicated it seems like the big difference for me are twofold. One, Raskolnikov wants to be a great man. He subscribes to this kind of great men theory that they are the ones who should have, kind of have the ethical and moral um, freedom to overstep the law like Napoleon did, like other great men from history have because they're kind of made of a different quality of stuff. And he hopes that he is one of those, and by killing the pawnbroker in Elizabeth, um, Raskolnikov is going to place himself in that class of person. But he discovers he's not that class of person. He can't even like, really get away with the murder. He's shrinking in terror before the detectives that are kind of snooping around his doors. And so part of his reckoning is a recognition that he is not made of the sort of stuff that Napoleon was made of. I think Coriolanus is different. I think everything that you see in Coriolanus is that he is a remarkable man. Um, he doesn't wrestle with the question that Raskolnikov wrestles with, which is, uh, it, it, Am I, should I be free to step over the line because I'm a great man? He doesn't really wrestle with that question directly. Um, but I think even by the end of the play, even when he dies at the hand of Ophidius and his man, he's still a remarkable warrior, a stunningly um, strong man who, you know, it takes a, a small army to defeat him when he's standing alone. Now, about the mothers, I think the difference between the mothers is Volumnia seems to have made Cominius in some ways in her own likeness. The ideals of Rome were so deeply impressed upon Coriolanus that he could hardly tell the difference between himself and Rome, which is part of what makes the conclusion his kind of escape from Rome and turning his back on Rome so complex and interesting. I don't see that same sort of relationship 
between Raskolnikov and his mother. In fact, Raskolnikov publishes a, an essay called On Crime. We read this about halfway through the story. And it basically justifies his great man theory, justifies that certain men should be free to um, do destructive acts and kind of be morally free to do so because they're so great. It's interesting that at the end of the story, Raskolnikov's mother is reading this essay and kind of talking herself into accepting on some level what Raskolnikov is asserting. She says, I don't really understand it, but I'm sure that you're right. And so I think, whereas Volumnia is impressing her ideals upon Coriolanus, I think it works in the opposite manner in Crime and Punishment. Raskolnikov is impressing his ideals upon his mother. I don't think he actually accomplishes this. I think that her affection for him is kind of trying to give him some sort of philosophical leniency. She's trying to be lenient toward his philosophical ideas because she loves him so much. That's, that's how I would wrap that up. So, Sarah Jane, that's what I think about the kind of comparison and contrast between Crime and Punishment and Coriolanus. Um, what do you think about this comparison that Stephanie makes between Frankenstein and Coriolanus? I think she's really struck on something here that uh, there's something going on between these anti-heroes and their mamas, definitely. So there are some moments in Frankenstein that are kind of disturbing. So the first thing that we hear about Victor's relationship with his mother is that he was idolised as a child. He says, I was their plaything, their idol. And I think that's really similar to the way that Volumnia treats Martius in some ways. But while Caroline Beaufort protects Victor Frankenstein and keeps him at home, Volumnia idolizes her son by saying, I was proud to let him seek danger where he was like to find fame and out to the cruel wars she sends him. So in a way, both children have had indulgent childhoods, but in different ways. So the difference is that Volumnia obviously doesn't die. She's still very much a part of Coriolanus's life. But Caroline Beaufort dies in Frankenstein. And when that happens, Victor Frankenstein has this really um, intense grieving period. And then he goes off to Ingolstadt. And the night that he's created the monster, when the monster comes to life, he has a dream of his mother sleepwalking um, in the streets of Ingolstadt and he embraces her and she dies in his arms and her body starts becoming eaten by worms. Mm. So he's holding this worm-eaten corpse of his mother in his dream. Now, that is pretty disturbing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the other thing about the novel that really struck me is that when he goes home, he sees, the first thing he sees when he comes through the door is the painting of his mother above the fireplace. And this is Caroline Beaufort kneeling in an agony of despair over the coffin of her dead father. So in, in Frankenstein, his mother is often associated with death. And there's clearly something going on there about, I don't know, his, his mother, the absence of his mother creating some kind of lack or want in him 
and his then his inability to be a parent he's a terrible father to the creature and um i'm sure there's much to be explored there in terms of what is coriolanus like as a father yes. and um is it that writers are interested or these two writers in particular are interested in um can the two generations coexist or does like does are Volumnia and, and Coriolanus in some way in competition with one another that one has to die in order for the other to thrive and there's probably loads written about this by someone like Freud that you could delve into sure if you're keen to delve into Freud yeah <laughs> or somebody else's commentary on Freud which is what people normally read about Freud probably so yeah in terms of justice not being served and everyone, everyone's suffering then um, I think I think that Stephanie's absolutely right and it's not a coincidence I think there is a preoccupation with sort of dysfunctional parental ch- child relationships in literature it makes for, for excellent drama it makes for an excellent novel it does I saw a Facebook post the other day that someone who kind of was rhetorically asking, can you name a great adolescent character from literature of the last, from the last 150 years that had, that comes from an intact home where mom and dad are married. I thought through it and I thought, I can't think of a single one, not a single one. Oh, what about Desdemona? But we don't know what happened to her mother, do we? Oh, I'm going to have to go away and think about that one. I wish I could give you an answer off the top of my head. It's I mean, just the fact that we're both having to think about it so long is evidence of the rhetorical power of the question. Hmm. I'm surely an Enid Blyton. I don't know anything about that person. Is that a person or the name of a... Enid Blyton, yeah, you know, the famous five. Maybe it's a very British thing. It must be a famous British thing. That or I'm, like, more ignorant than I thought that I was. Talk the latter. No, I think teenage literature like that is very specific to where you're brought up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Maybe Enid Blyton didn't uh, crack the American market. No. <laughs> Okay, three more questions. Um, Tim, you have mentioned it many times. What is the version of Coriolanus that you really, really like? I'm going to try to interlibrary loan it. It's from Laura. It is Alan Howard playing the lead role of Coriolanus. It was done in 1984. And it was a made-for-TV movie, and I believe it was produced for and by the BBC. They did all of Shakespeare's plays in, I don't know, like a five-year period. And so the 84 Coriolanus starring Alan Howard is the one worth every bit of effort you will put into it. Second to last question, Sarah Jane. This one from Sarah Montgomery. She has actually directed this question to Mary Cummins. She says, wouldn't it be great if we just go out for coffee with Tim and Sarah Jane and pick their brain for hours. And I wonder if you wanted to weigh in on that, on that question that was not directed to either of us. I would love to go out to coffee with Sarah and Mary and talk about Shakespeare and anything else to do with books and being mothers or teachers. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> Maybe at one of the conferences sometime. Maybe one in Charleston one day. 
hopefully um, COVID will have lightened up so much so that we can next summer all four go out. And if that happens, um, Mary and Sarah, we're buying the coffee. Absolutely. There's a few, maybe a few kind of obstacles there to overcome, but nothing is insurmountable. And I would love to go for coffee with Sarah and Mary. So yeah, let's make it a date. It sounds great. Okay, Sarah Jane, that brings us to the big question that Sarah asked at the beginning of the show. I'm going to read the whole thing again. (laughs) This is the one that we've kind of been sitting on. The mother was so eager to sacrifice her son for Rome at the beginning of the play. It seems like in the end, she's true to herself and chooses Rome over her son, even though Rome has betrayed her son and disrespected his sacrifice. Corinthus does end up sacrificing himself and seems to me a noble hero. But what is Shakespeare actually saying in this play? That's the, that's the question we have to ask about every Shakespeare play, isn't it? The other question I often ask is what questions or what question is Shakespeare asking in this mm-hmm. play? But let's answer this. So, I mean, I have my kind of thesis about what I think Shakespeare is actually saying. I think he's saying that Rome is self-consuming. That's what I think he's saying. I think Volumnia, who is... Coriolanus's mother, but is also Rome, is true to her ideals. She sacrifices Martius for Rome. So um, what is Shakespeare saying in terms of heroism? What is he saying in terms of tragedy? What's he saying in terms of family? I think he's saying that the, the state or the, the nation state of Rome cuts across all other ties and is supreme we see in the play a sovereign state um which is not in any way a biblical idea and the all-powerful all-consuming state that shakespeare shows us is is this cannibalistic beast that eats its own and you know i really like i spoke about this at the circe conference actually i really like peter lightheart's argument that in dramatizing this shakespeare kind of gestures towards the alternative, which is something like Augustine's City of God, where there's um, a, a currency or a communion of perfect gratia, of grace, rather than the ingratitude that we see in the play. But there are a few other things to say in, in answer to this question. I think that we could also look at um, the idea that Shakespeare's maybe saying something a little bit didactic to James I and to the audience. He's saying this kind of tyrannical autonomy won't be tolerated. So if a ruler is too autocratic, he risks being banished and having no voice at all. Mm. Um, And on the other hand, he's also saying to the plebeians, look, don't banish your defenders. Sometimes you need people like this to speak for you um, because what happens when when the enemy comes, you need a strong leader. So those things are also being said by Shakespeare but I wouldn't want to try and pin down his politics in either direction. And then last of all, I think Shakespeare is also saying something in the genre of Greek tragedy, which is don't rebel against the state. The rugged individual will always be cut down unless he can be reconciled to um, what the state decrees. And that's always what we see in Greek tragedy, isn't it? And I've compared this play before to something like the Bacchae where we see Pentheus being torn to pieces. Sarah Jane, the question kind of 
requires in some way a statement about what we think Shakespeare's goals were as a playwright. Because he's so, it's so uncommon that you get to one of, you get to one of Shakespeare's plays and you finish one of Shakespeare's plays. I think especially the tragedies for me. And you say, well, I got the lesson. And now I know crime doesn't pay or one must love one's enemies. I mean, it's just, that's, that sort of lesson making is, is pretty rare for him. If there are lessons in his play, it seems like they show up as kind of um, gems in the dirt, a, a specific relationship or a specific character in crisis acting nobly or acting dishonorably, then you can kind of pick out that gem from the dirt and say, I think that he's trying to show us something here. But when you look, step back and look at the big picture of, the, of, of a single play and in the corpus of his plays, he's notoriously slippery. He, we, we have mentioned him as an equivocator in some ways. There's even a play that I've mentioned on previous podcasts by Bill Kane, a great play. And the play is about uh, someone proposed to Shakespeare. It's a historical, it's imagined historical play. Someone approached Shakespeare, the character in this play, and says, we want you to write something on the Guy Fawkes affair. And that political event was so right. It was so, it was just dynamite to touch that play. Absolute dynamite. Nice pun. Oh yeah. Sorry. I didn't even mean to make a pun. And the play is about Shakespeare kind of trying to wiggle his way around all of the landmines, dynamite associated with writing a play like that. And the title of the play is Equivocation. Macbeth. (laughs) Macbeth is about the gunpowder plot. Is it really? A lot of it, yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. So the coin that was minted at the time had um, a flower with a serpent underneath it. And that was to um, commemorate the how, how the state and the ruler, the king, prevailed against the plot. And of course, Lady Macbeth references it directly. She says, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. Mm, 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 mm. I have a hard time saying what Coriolanus is about because I think that Shakespeare is expert in positioning antithetical points of view and placing them in um, a no-holds-barred conflict. And oftentimes what's required for one side to end up the victor is that that victory comes at the cost of one's soul. So for me, I would put the kind of antithesis poll markers of this play as something like Coriolanus, a great man, not an ethically... Uh, well-scrubbed man, but by all counts, a remarkable man, a truth teller, a mighty general. And I think he is placed opposite, not Ophidius, but the Roman people. And I think if there's a lesson, I think that Shakespeare is 
saying something like, this is the, this is what happens in, um, a demos. I know that we're talking about the Roman Republic, but when this is kind of like the cost of doing business, when the demos, the people have a strong voice in the government, it's a good thing because it allows more fair and equal representation. But the demos has the habit of consuming good men, of consuming men that are not like it. It chews them up and it spits it out. And that has not changed. That has not changed one bit. And I think the battlefield now is not the actual terrain of military conflict. It's the media. But the results seem very, very similar. That, that great men, um, the demos, tends to trample them underfoot while also requiring their duty and service on their own behalf. And that's a mess. That's just a mess. And it's, a, it's one of those kind of, this is a discouraging thing about the nature of human politics is that this is just the nature of it. And it's just, it's destructive to both sides. That's mm. it. If I'm going to make a, a shot at what Queerlance is about, that's the best that I think I could do. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely spot on. I think if we flip it around and say, what question is Shakespeare asking? I, I think you're right. I think it's something like, can a democracy work? Yeah. And that Shakespeare probably would have been a Kuyperian. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is a Kuyperian? You're talking about the, the Dutch theologian philosopher, Abraham Kuyper, but tell me what Kuyperianism is. Okay, really briefly and not in any detail, it's the idea of sphere sovereignty. So all things um, have their sovereign spheres under the lordship of Christ. So the state is not sovereign over the family. The state is not sovereign over the church. And these spheres of sovereignty overlap in certain places, but um, all of them are subject to the will of Christ and the rulership of Christ. And essentially it, it's really interesting in the context of today where we have a sovereign state that's growing and growing and grabbing power all the time. And especially in this time of um, pandemic, we've already seen the state flex. Listeners, if you want to look up Abraham Kuyper, it's not spelled as it sounds. It's make sure I get this right, Sarah Jane. Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R, K-U-Y-P-E-R. We have roamed into uh, modern Dutch theological, philosophical, political theory <laughs> from where we started in the beginning, which is what the show does. It's great. It's what the show does. And Sarah Jane, I think you just blush as if like we made some error. We did not make an error. This is what we do. Oh, I just wonder if I'm kind of getting beyond my remit. I'm not a theologian. No. <laughs> no. Yes, you are a theologian. You're, well, I'm, I'm not going to say that. No, I am going to say it. You're, more, you're a better theologian than a lot of the theology professors I've had. Yes. She's shaking her head, listeners. Yes. Yes. I think it's a, a British condition that um, British women are not very good at taking compliments, if that's what that was. <laughs> it was definitely a compliment. Okay, now I asked earlier, do we owe ourselves congratulations or condolences upon 
reaching the end of Coriolanus, and I'm now firmly in the condolences camp. I feel like we someone needs to bake us brownies um, and offer us condolences because we've reached the end of this play that you and I love, especially, especially this play among Shakespeare's other plays. I'm a little sad. Yeah, we could just do it again one day. In five years, in 10 years, what will we look back and say regarding our first series of podcasts? Hopefully we won't be too embarrassed. Well, hopefully a play like Coriolanus won't have been banned by the state by then as well. (laughs) I hope not. Oh my gosh. It's possible, looking out of the window right now, what's going on. It's possible. Really? Yeah. I, I... I wonder if the situation over here is a little bit different because the there's been an emphasis on decentralized decision-making with regards to COVID, which, at least in my circles, that's been a complaint. Maybe England, the opposite has happened. There's been more centralization. Possibly, yes. Um, but also just in the context of education and oh, right? um, what can be on a reading list and what can't be these days. Yeah. Oh, that's a little spooky. Yeah, maybe for another time. Maybe for, maybe, <laughs> Discussion for another day. Yes, maybe so. Maybe when um, we go and we have coffee with Mary and Sarah. Yes, what is your ideal reading list is a good discussion to have over coffee. Yeah. I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, remember, the best way to get in touch with us is through the Close Reads podcast discussion page on Facebook. Uh, that place is trafficked so well. There's always interesting discussions that are happening, sometimes about the podcast, sometimes about Abraham Kuyper, sometimes about the best meme that someone has seen recently. Uh, thank you so much for those of you who are not just listeners of the show, but also supporters of the show. We are exceptionally grateful for that, and we're exceptionally grateful that Logan, our longtime engineer, were able to pay him um, for the expert work that he does. And with that, Sarah Jane, I'm going to say goodbye for the both of us. Thanks for listening to The Place the Thing. I am Tim McIntosh, and for Sarah Jane Bentley, thanks for listening and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.